We are in this love letter under this series of uh, Beloved, the look of a new life in Christ. We're in 1 John. If you don't have a Bible, they'll bring one from the back if you just raise your hand. So you could have a Bible right in front of you. Right up here in the front, we have one or two. So bring a couple up here, please. And uh, 1 John is right near the end of the whole book. So if you go to the end of Revelation and then just back up two or three little pages, you'll be right on top of 1 John. We're in chapter 2 today. This is a love letter written by John. He was one of the 12 disciples, the youngest, and uh, the one who lived longer than any of the others. In fact, he... um, was the only one who died of what they would call natural causes of old age. The rest all died as martyrs. And John was convinced that he was Jesus' favorite. In fact, he called himself the disciple that Jesus loved. Um, maybe you felt that way. You know, you were your favorite in your family or your favorite with Jesus. You probably are. And um, so he wrote this letter because of his great love for Jesus and uh, his love for the church that was getting off track. And uh, he, John had this beautiful relationship with Jesus. He'd become a fully devoted follower of Christ. It changed his whole life. And so he wrote this. He tells us in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, that I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, in chapter 1, of course, he talks about God is light. And uh, John uses the metaphor of darkness and light uh, in his writings. Uh, darkness refers to all that's evil and false. Light, in contrast, all that is true and righteous. And, uh, of course, in God there is not any even a hint or a, a, a suggestion of evil. He's true and he's good in all that he is. And Pastor Dana preached about that last week. And uh, John knows that that's not true of people in general. It's not true of the ones, the people he knows, even the church people, and it's not true of himself in particular. He knows that we need to get right with Jesus to be right with God. And so if you look at the last few verses of chapter 1, if we were reviewing, it says, if you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have no sin, think about it. If you claim you have no sin, then you don't need a Savior. You don't need Jesus. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. So when you start chapter 2, He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The question is, what should a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ do about sin? Because sin is irrational. It doesn't make sense. It's devastating. It breaks relationships. God hates sin, and there is an answer. In fact, Bob Newhart used it in a little clip. You could look to, if you just looked up his name and what I'm going to tell you, he said there's, here's what you, he's talking in a skit to a troubled client who says, I'm having a problem with this. And he says, well, here, I'm going to tell you what you need to do. Some of you have probably seen it. You don't need to write this down, okay? You probably know. You know what he told him? Stop it. Stop it. When it comes to sin, stop it. And in fact, if you just looked up Bob Newhart, stop it, you you would find it. And he says, my little children, I'm writing these things. John wants his full attention. It's like like if you take the face of a child because they're all distracted and running around. You take their face and, and you get it so you could look them right in the eye. And he says, I am writing these things to you, church people, so that you may not sin. Why? Because some of them are having a problem with sin. And here's the good news. God loves you, and he hates sin because of what it does. Now, see, on vacation, we went out to eat a lot. And, well, I mean, we went out a lot to eat. 
and I did eat a lot. And um, we would, before we would go, somebody would look up Yelp and find just the place to go. And based on the Yelp uh, recommendations or ratings, we would go to different restaurants. And some of them were way out of the way places you'd have never found. But Yelp will tell you about the food and about the service and about the atmosphere and the beauty of the place and how people were treated and, and give it a number of stars. And it, it kind of would tell you, here's the restaurant test and here's how they did. Well, I have my own test for restaurants, kind of my own restaurant test, and it goes like this. How do I feel about a half an hour after I leave the restaurant? <laughs> Any of you ever try that? Say, you know, that, that had great ratings, but look what I've, I don't, I don't feel all that great after I ate their food. And uh, maybe it was the food, maybe it was the amount. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, differentiate there, but, you know, sin up front would get a high Yelp rating. It's fun. It looks good. We like it. And we all have what Charles Wesley put into a hymn, a bent towards sinning. A bent towards sinning. It's like we were bent and aiming that direction. It's kind of like when you get a dent in your car and you take it in, they try to pound it out and they put some bondo on it and they try to sand it down, paint it over, make it look the same as it was, but it's not. There's still a little shadow there. There's a bent, a certain direction. You and I have a bent towards sinning. Sin is sweet, it's attractive, it's fun, and it's poison. It'll kill you. Now, God isn't anti-fun. He's anti-brokenness. Sin erects a barrier in our relationship with God. Sin separates people from God. It will bring consequences, and unchecked, it will bring death. In fact, all through the Bible, from the beginning to end, people became sinners, and they found this out the hard way, starting with the first ones, Adam and Eve in the garden, perfect people in a perfect garden, in a perfect world, and God gave them even free choice. He says, you can have everything in the garden except there was one tree. Don't touch it. Everything else you can have. Guess which tree had a little path all the way around it? Yeah, until finally they said, we got to try some of that. And they tried just a little bit of sin, and all of a sudden they felt exposed and then they were expelled. And it broke the relationship with God. You keep reading in the Bible and you come up with Moses, this towering figure in the Old Testament. He's trained to be king. He's mentored in the desert uh, as, uh, in his uh, growing experience after a breaking experience in his life. He's a friend of God. They are on a first name, talk in words kind of basis. And God used him to take an entire nation out of slavery and head them towards freedom. And he had a, a little problem that he never solved. He never went to an anger management class, and he should have early in his life. Moses had a struggle with that his whole life. And here he gets to where God is using him to bring this whole nation of people out of slavery in Egypt towards the promised land, stops in the wilderness to get the law. And, uh, and he's with all these whiny, moany, groany, complaining people. And it kind of gets to him day after day after day. And finally, he just explains. His, his anger takes over one day when God said, speak to that rock and it will produce the water that you need. And instead he takes his stick and gives it a big old whack. Doesn't seem like a big deal, does it? Except it was exactly what God, it wasn't what God had said to do. And so afterwards, God honored him by having water come out of the rock, but God comes to him privately and says, because of that, you're not going to enter the promised land. You'll get the people right to the edge. And Moses was apologetic, and he was so sorry, and he asked God over and over and over, please let me go into the promised land. That was the whole goal. That's what we're doing out here. And the Bible actually records where God finally says to Moses, don't ask me that one more time. The answer is no. I have forgiven you your sin, but there's consequences. You're going to live with the consequences of the sin that you got yourself into. Sin has nasty consequences, and they lead towards death. 
Moses had a sister, Miriam. She's 12 years older than, she, than he is. And he's the reason she, he was, Miriam is the reason that Moses was even alive. Because when he was a baby, you weren't allowed to be a baby and be a boy in Egypt at that time. And so his mom made a little basket and put it out on the Nile, hoping that somebody would find this little boat with the baby in it and have compassion on him. And Miriam watched from the shore. And wouldn't you know, Pharaoh's uh, daughter found it, the princess. And she... Um, pulled the basket ashore, and right then Miriam stepped up and said, would you like me to find somebody to care for this baby for you? Her timing was impeccable. Well, she's out there 80 years later. She's out there in the wilderness with all the people who don't know anything about living out of doors for weeks or months, and uh, she doesn't think Moses is doing everything right. She starts to kind of yap about it a little bit. And finally God says, and, and talking to her brother Aaron, who was the high priest, but he also was a high complainer, I guess. And God said to the three of them, hey, come on out here. I've got to talk to the three of you. So they had a holy huddle, holy because God is in it. And God says, you know, Miriam, I don't really like how you're talking about Moses. And she says, well, yeah, he da 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 And God says, wait a minute. He's my chosen leader, and you're speaking against him. And God gave her leprosy right there on the spot, head to toe. Now she's uh, unclean. She can't come back into the camp. And she would have died from leprosy if Moses hadn't prayed for her and begged God for mercy. And she spent the, God healed her, but she spent the next seven days in solitude outside the camp. Sin has consequences. You go 500 years later into the Bible, and you come to David, who is the eighth son in his family. Nobody would ever heard of this little guy except for, the, for God choosing him and, and elevating him and making him king over all of Israel and gave him all kinds of power and prestige and possessions. But he somehow felt like he needed more. Already had 20 wives of his own, but he saw somebody else's wife over the, uh, the top of the palace and said, I just have to have her, and uh, committed adultery and then murder to cover his tracks, and uh, innocent people died. Now, God brought it to his attention through a prophet, and David was broken. In fact, if, if you were struggling with sin yourself, the psalm that he wrote, Psalm 51, is one of the best places to look to say, how do I have my heart broken before God and genuinely ask God to forgive me? then that's a, a good place to start reading. God forgave him, but his family never recovered and the kingdom was never the same. It was compromised after that. While David was king, he wanted to do great things for God. He wanted to move the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now, the Ark was a box that was made by Moses and his craftsmen that symbolized God is in this box. Don't touch the box. There was a ring on the four corners. The, the priests consecrate themselves. They would put poles through the rings, and then four priests would carry this together, and all the people would follow behind knowing we are following God. Well, 500 years have gone by, and that box has just sat in somebody's house. And um, finally, David says, we have to give it its proper place. But he doesn't take time to read God's word to say, how do we do God's work God's way? So they put it on a cart, and they're moving it up to Jerusalem on a cart, and it's bumbling along on the back of the cart. And they're coming up a little hill, and it's bumpy, and the thing is about to fall off. And this guy at the back just wanted to help keep it from falling on the ground, puts his hand on it, which you're never supposed to touch it. Z Uzzah died right there from touching the ark. You see, sometimes sin has instant consequences. Other times, we will hear later, we will be called account for our lives. The sins that have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ will be forgiven and forgotten because he's covered them. You know, Solomon was David's son, and he perfected sin. He took it to the nth degree and God ended up, even though God spoke to him in visions twice, 
The Bible says at the end of his life, his heart was turned away from the Lord. He stopped following the Lord, and the Lord tore most of the kingdom out of his hand. Those people that were the children of Israel, called by God, called God says, you're mine. Come live in righteousness and walk with me. Instead, you know, they sin. When you sin once, it's kind of an event. You sin, you know, twice, you, three times, four times, you start to get a habit started. Sin, and now you have enough of a habit, you got a lifestyle. Well, they had lived that way so long, they reached a point of no return, and God removed his blessings from them, his presence from them, and, and they, he removed them from his land. People don't seem to understand. I mean, maybe they do understand, but it, we need to get right with God. Keep short accounts. Even after Jesus came, even after he died and rose again, even after the Holy Spirit came and the church was started, this, the people who claim to be in love with God had the same kind of problem. And there's a story in the book of Acts, right as it's getting started, people were, were seeing miracles done and great preaching and, and gathering together and lots of acts of service in the name of Christ. And people were giving generously. Some were even selling pieces of property to give so that God's work could be funded and move forward. And there's this one couple that said, hey, we should do something like that. And they gave a generous gift. They sold a piece of property or their home or something so they could give, and, but they tried to fool everybody by saying, you know, we gave the gift. It was everything that we got in the sale. Well, it wasn't. And God used Peter to first call the husband to accountability and gave him a chance to repent, and he didn't, and his life was taken that day. And then a couple hours later, his wife was given the same opportunity, and she didn't, and her life was taken. And it, it caused a great stir among the church that sin really matters to God. Live a life of righteousness, and don't try to deceive everybody and God. God loves you, and He hates sin. And you and I have a bent towards sinning, and we all sin, which breaks out our fellowship with God, which offends God and stirs up his wrath. I mean, it's a real mess. What should a fully devoted follower of Christ do about sin? Stop it. Stop. Don't do it. But the truth is, we don't quit. In fact, in our own strength, we can't. It's like a cancer that once you have it, you can fight it, fight it, fight it. You might even get it into remission, but you'll fight it. It'll be your fight to the very last day of your life. I don't think that we ever reach sinless perfection in some place where sin just doesn't have a tug on us. It does. So what should a fully devoted follower of Christ do about sin? First, st stop. And the second is confess it. Confess. Admit it. Ask for Christ's forgiveness. He has offered it to us in great measure. He'll, he'll give you all that you need. It says if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then John adds, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's why he wrote this book. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Keep the screen up right there. The word but in this is from the Greek word kai, K-A-I. And they have, it's a richer word than, than our word um, but. Sometimes it means and. You know how when you come to a, a corner and it says take a right, you might take a 90 degree right or you might take a 45 degree right depending on where the road is. And so uh, this sometimes can be translated but and sometimes it can be translated and and I think even sometimes it can be translated when. So the experts say it should be translated and. 
I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, you all be the experts. Who thinks it should be but? Who thinks it should be and? Yeah. Because yeah. I think we just have a propensity for sinning. We, we just seem to return to it, even though we have Christ alive inside of us. It really is a, a contradiction. It's, a, it's not something that we can easily explain away. There's no rationality for it uh, as believers. When Christ is in us, and that's what John is trying to say, stay connected to Christ and live in His righteousness. And when you slip up and sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I mean, that's good news. What he's telling us is that we have a Savior, Jesus. He's our hope. In fact, our only hope, Jesus Christ the righteous. You know, Christ is not part of Jesus' name. It's a title. Be like Mr. Jesus, Mr. Jesus Christ. It's really Jesus the Christ, but they just kind of shortened it to take the 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 out of the middle. In fact, when John finished writing his gospel, in John chapter 20, the last couple of verses say this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which aren't written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, John wrote in his gospel, and in his gospel he calls Jesus the Christ. He calls him the Son of God. He calls him the King of Israel. When Jesus even went on trial before um, the governor, Pontius Pilate, Jesus, uh, Pilate asked him, are you a king? Because that would be offensive to Caesar and would put him to death. And Jesus said, well, not of this world. In other words, yes, but not of this world. And so as they hung on the cross, they actually put a sign above his head that said, King of the Jews, and they mocked him because he claimed to be a king. So the title of the Christ involves the idea that Jesus is the unique anointed one from God. He's the king from God. He's the Christ. He's the savior. He's the one and only. God has not and will not be sending another savior into the world other than Jesus. Jesus was God come in human flesh, and he's the only hope for sin to be paid for. For God's wrath to be satisfied. You can't walk into heaven on your own merits and say, I'm so much better than so many other people, I should get in based on the curve. There is no curve. The only people who be there who say, are the ones who say, I was a sinner. My sin is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Those are the only ones. He's Jesus Christ, the righteous. The righteous part picks up the idea from Hebrews 7, 25, that talks about Christ is our pure, perfect high priest willing and able to make intercession for us. And Jesus goes on to call, uh, John goes on to call Jesus our advocate with the Father. Now, an advocate is somebody who speaks up for you, who pleads your case. And uh, there is this picture in the Bible in numerous places that God is the judge, and you and I are put on trial for our life to give an account for our life and for our sin. We will stand before God on trial for our sin. And, and Jesus is our advocate who's able to say, whoop, I'm here to help. And guess what? This person is declared not guilty based on I've covered all of their sin because they asked me to. The word here for advocate is the Greek word paraclete, which only shows up in the Bible five times, but the other four times, you know who he's talking about? Some, I'm sure you do. You've heard that word paraclete, right? 
the Holy Spirit. It's in John 14, 15, 16 that says this, the, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, will be the, the helper. And what is he going to help the believers with while Jesus is gone? He's going to help us believers remember God, Jesus' commandments and do them. So it's kind of interesting that uh, you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and two of them are called the paraclete, the advocate, the helper. The Holy Spirit helping us remember Jesus' commandments to do them. And up in heaven, Jesus standing there as our helper to advocate for us to say, no, 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 that person's not guilty. They don't need to be sentenced. They're covered by my sacrifice. See, he's saying here, if we sin or when we sin, we do not need to live in fear because Jesus is standing there in God's presence. And when your name comes up, he opens the document folder with your name on it, and the top page says, not guilty, all debts have been paid, paid in full. John goes on to say he, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, which that's not exactly a word that we use in conversational English. Anybody use the word propitiation this last week while you were talking with your friends? I didn't think so. It means atoning sacrifice. It's the sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath against sinners. So Jesus paid the price on the cross for all the sin of all the people in the world, and he was able to offer forgiveness to every man, woman, and child because of his atoning sacrifice on the cross, because he was God, because he was perfect, and because he came into this world to die for your sin and mine. And so he has offered forgiveness to everyone. That does not mean that all humans are saved. Do you know, in the houses in Orange County, I don't think you can build a house here and uh, get the approvals that you would need without wiring it for electricity. Seems kind of simple, but all of you have electricity in your house, right? And um, the walls, uh, wires are wired right into the walls, and the electric sockets are there ready to receive a plug. And uh, all you have to do to have electricity is to plug something in and turn it on. Your house is wired for electricity. But you can be left completely in the dark by choice. Now, of course, I know that power can go off and that, that can be a problem and leave you in the dark involuntarily. So I don't want to push this illustration too far, but Jesus has the power for you to be forgiven. And he has never had a power outage. But if you never plug in, you don't automatically get the benefit of his power, of his light, if you have, don't want it, if you don't turn it on, if you don't ask for it. He's offered it to everyone. It's only those who choose it by faith and ask for forgiveness and who acquire the power to live as the sons and daughters of God and to have their sin covered in God's sight. You know, when, when you ask, then his blood has the power to forgive your sin and to atone for you before God. This, I mean, it's good news. So why should, what should a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ do about sin? Confess it and thank God for Jesus Christ. The third thing besides stop it Confess it is forsake it. Forsake it. Leave it behind. Jesus is the only antidote for sin, which I think is funny. Is that word spelled right? Somebody pointed that out after the first service. Isn't that funny? You're trying to talk about somebody who makes us perfect, and there's an imperfection right there uh, that I put in. And um, it says in 1 John 2, verse 3, by this we know that we have come to him if we keep his commandments. Do you know Jesus? Here's the test. You keep his commandments. Do you know Jesus? I mean, here's the lie we, we try. John is on to us. Look at what he says in verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, 
but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. If your life is not consistent with saying, I know Jesus, well then, shh, don't talk about him. Except we as believers are told by Jesus, talk about him. Because he wants our lives and our belief and how we live to match his commandments, to show that he is in charge. He's the one who gave the commands. He's the commander. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. The word perfected also means completed. The Bible says Jesus was made perfect in what he suffered. It's saying he was made complete. Jesus was perfect already as in sinless before he came into this world, but the sufferings that he endured here caused him to be completed, that now he had been tested and still found true. So it's saying get to know Jesus better. Push yourself to increase in knowledge, to increase your love for Jesus and lead you to greater obedience. That as we grow older as believers, we don't just sit on a plateau. We keep studying God's word, which we do in our Sunday school classes and our small groups we keep, and, and at home and pushing ourselves to know God's word, but not just to know knowledge, but to have a deeper love relationship going with Jesus, which increase our obedience and our faith and our trust in him and to keep Jesus' word. Truly the love of God is perfected in you he says, so when we recognize that he's the commander, we do what he says because that's what he wants us to do. And number two, because there is an accounting day coming when we stand before him. John says, whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. Somebody must have been trying to say that in that church. To say, well, I know Jesus, but uh, he didn't really mean that when he said that, did he? I mean, that sounds so radical. Maybe he really meant, and we try to water it down. Or I love Jesus, but I like to do my own thing, which <laughs> I know it goes against what Jesus says, but so don't tell the people at church. But I'd like just a little bit of Jesus, not the whole package, not the whole enchilada. I want enough of Jesus to be forgiven and get into heaven, but I don't really want it to impact my life because I want to have fun. Most fun you'll ever have is loving and following Jesus. I mean, if you say those kind of things, you don't really know Jesus is what John is saying. You don't really love Jesus because Jesus is in charge. In fact, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And John is saying it the other way around. If you're not keeping his commandments, you're not in love with Jesus. When Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, he was talking to his closest followers, his disciples. All of them gathered there around the table at the Last Supper. Some of them must have been trying to half walk with Jesus and half walk with the world. And when you're half here and half there, it doesn't work and it hurts. But when you do walk with Jesus, then you do what John said. You just abide in Jesus. You just abide. You stay connected. You read his word. You gather his people and you pray and you, you listen to his voice and you just abide. You don't have to be fancy. You don't have to stay, be, be in style. In fact, to abide in Jesus will put you out of step and out of style with this world. And, and, and that's okay. You just abide in Jesus because that's where the greatest joy and the greatest love and the greatest peace and the greatest fulfillment are to be found. That's the sweet spot to receiving God's blessing and approval. So it says, you're mine. You're my favorite. I love you. Just keep following and serving me. And you walk the same way Jesus walked. So what do you do about sin? You forsake it. Now, you think, well, nobody knows about mine. It's private. But if God's Spirit is bringing it to mind, then just have a private confession. Take care of it. Get back right with God. 
Other people find that it's helpful to find somebody they trust and to share with them and have them hold them accountable in the struggle. Maybe somebody from your small group. I mean, what happens in your heart when you read God's Word and you know that some habit in your life is not pleasing God, does not please Jesus? What do you do? Do you care? Or are you calloused? And when you confront your own sin, is there genuine sorrow and is, or is there indifference? Is there confession and repentance? Or is there a hard heart that says, Jesus, you have to take me just the way I am? Because he's promised to forgive. But it's not something that we take flippantly. Puts us, if, if you say, well, I'm probably on the hard-hearted side, that's dangerous territory. It's time to get right before God and to pray and to pray and to just wait there until finally say, God, take my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. Help my heart to soften before you and to be broken before him. To be a fully devoted follower of Jesus means to follow even when it's not your preference, even when it's not your idea, even when it's not your way of doing things, to put Jesus first. I mean, that's what John did, and he changed his life. He could have had the goal of being the most average fisherman on the Sea of Galilee in a 75-year period, and nobody would have ever heard of him. And instead, he gave his life to Jesus. And then he left home. He was following Jesus. One of the first big tasks he had to do is to stand at the foot of the cross. He was the only disciple courageous enough to do that. He was given the task of taking care of Jesus' mother, Mary. He cared for her to the end of her life. And he ended up caring for God's people in the church. And by writing stories about Jesus and by writing letters to churches. Uh, and, and then he suffered uh, for the name of Christ. And uh, he also got to see Jesus in heaven first in a vision and then in person. He won. He won. He chose the right path. So he helps us here. What should we do about sin? Quit. Confess it. And forsake it. And instead, let's be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? God, I pray that you will call us your people to greater righteousness and faith and trust and obedience, and peace, and joy, and love, and fulfillment. Thank you for John. We could see it in his life. Thank you for what he wrote to what must have been a contentious church. Thank you that we have this challenge to live for you. I pray that even here, each of us just privately in our hearts will say, God, take my heart. I give the whole thing to you. You be in charge. Move me and mold me as you would. Make of me who you want me to be. Starting today, I forsake my sin. I ask your forgiveness. Help me to think your thoughts and to live a righteous, God-fearing, God-fulfilling, God-pleasing life. And God, as we do that, we will be lights that shine in this world that tell people about Jesus. And someday we'll hear you say, well done. Thank you for that assurance that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen.